directive changes may receive the third Peter work you have a good work you want to do in our lives Lord we just again have your way and the Holy Spirit illuminate your word to us uh, of your truths as we continue this study here in the book of Genesis the beginning Lord and uh, we thank you for 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 your word go before us again as we worship you Father in Jesus name we pray we all said amen 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 let us worship
the sweetest of loves when my heart becomes free and my shame is undone your presence Holy Spirit you are welcome come to love this
you called me your own. There's no place I'd rather be than in your arms. Alone. In your arms alone. Holding me still. Holding me near. In your song to my Savior, to my Jesus, I'm grateful for the things you've done, my loving Savior, my precious Jesus, my heart is glad that you called me That you've called me your own. There's no place I'd rather be. Thank you. 
few announcements here and we'll get into the word. Lots of announcements, actually. Uh, please bring back your uh, bottles here next week because next week we collect them and we take them to CareNet. So fill them up, bring them back next Sunday, put them in the buckets out there in the foyer. You'll see them on the floor and just slide them right through. So return these next week. Um, and if you have don't have a bottle, you can still fill it up this week. So grab one and fill it up if there's one out there. So certainly do that. Of course, the men's and ladies' studies continue this week. Ladies, on Tuesday at 9.30, 11.30, there's child care. Uh, but there's also 6.30 to 8.30 in the evening time. There's worksheets, so uh, please uh, plan on that. Men's uh, Thursday night, 6.30, with uh, Pastor uh, Rick with and Jeremiah. So make sure you get plugged in that. It's never too late to get plugged into these studies. Just uh, just plug right in. It, it just it's, it's incredible for the fellowship of the ladies and the men. And it's inc- very encouraging in your walk. Uh, with the Lord and certainly uh, serving alongside each other. Uh, success last week, we talked about the bookstore and having to move all the thrift store items over there. That went beautifully Sunday afternoon for those who helped. Thank you so much. So the room is empty and all the storage stuff is over here now. So we're now in the planning stage and design of how the bookstore is going to be. And we'll be expanding in there here in the near future. Uh, so keep that in prayer for ladies who are uh, desire to put that uh, expand that ministry so uh, we'll be doing that here in the near future so we'll have some good stuff in there for you to equip you uh, also coming up here uh, important I'll just make some mention of the ladies there is a sign-up sheet for the ladies uh, Christmas tea that's happening on December 8th Saturday and you can put your name if you have desire to share some food for that please sign up so we have a sense Ladies, they usually have really good tea. Seriously, it's good. There's sometimes there's leftover. So those who do want to come clean up, you can always have the the spoiled. That's for sure. Um, But green cards, grab them on the information desk. Pass them out. Share them among your fellowship men. Your leaders of the house, go pick up one. Give one to your wife. Encourage her to come. Also, ladies, pass them out to others outside the fellowship. Encourage you to come into uh, good, solid fellowship in the teaching of the word. And uh, it's just a sweet time every year that they do it. It's just beautiful sights when you decorated out and everything. Uh, next thing up here, uh, big thing coming up here is this Saturday. So if you've picked up items for the Operation Christmas Child, make sure you bring them in. Uh, ladies, we'll be here on Friday from 2 to 4 if you can drop the items off that you signed up for for the packing party on Saturday the 17th. If not, make sure you come on the 17th from 2 to 4 uh, for the actual pa- the packing party itself and bring your items and we'll make sure that's there. Also, make sure you bring your boxes in on that Sunday the 18th because we will put on a, we'll have a table up here so you can put your boxes from your family there and at the end of the service then some people will be taking them over to the next destination so next week is the big week uh, collection of the operation christmas child but continue to pray uh for that ministry in those boxes and uh, that god will use those in the lives of those children as they reach and first of all happy veterans day for those who are veterans uh it's a it's a happy day it's a, a brings back as as a veteran um Kathleen and I were sharing how it was just all the people we've been thinking about that we served back 
over the years in, in the military and deployed and everything, all these people's faces start popping back up. These, these pictures popping up on Facebook and things of people you haven't thought about and prayed for. It's kind of a great reminder to be uh, reaching back out and touching out uh, with some people you haven't touched with in a long time. So encourage you to do that as well. Uh, da -da -da -da. And lastly, a couple of things at the very end of the service, and I'll try to remember them uh, to remind you. We have some uh, leftover cupcakes. Uh, so we encourage you to, we're going to have them out there for you to grab as a time of fellowship. But also, if you have a desire, we need to uh, move these chairs and pack them up and move them to the side because the packing party are going to prep for that and get the tables out um, so that can be set up. So if you can help move some chairs, uh, you know, from Christine or, or Carol or so, some of, someone will help to guide you where to stack those chairs up and move them and we'll be putting some tables out here. So if you can do that afterwards and grab a cupcake while you're at it, uh, eat those up and throw them and throw those away for sure. And that's it. Lastly, let's pray. And then uh, let's pray for also Andrew and Aaron who are deployed. And let's uh, and we'll get into the word. Father, again, we thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you, Lord, for uh, allowing us to be able to gather here in your name and to study your word uh, together. And we pray, Lord, that you will uh, just uh, illuminate your word to us. So we lift up Andrew and Aaron to you. Uh, just hearing that uh, Aaron is sick, uh, we pray for him and, and, and healing for him, Lord, in the, over there. Find rest in you, uh, but also healing from you. So we pray for him, and we also Andrew in protection for both of those men, and and for their wives and, and the children there, Lord. We pray that these you would encourage their wives, encourage their children, to uh, and the family, the surrounding family, those moms and dads that are out there that are worried about their sons, Lord. We pray that uh, you would calm that heart as they trust in you, uh, and through this time of this season of deployment. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name we all said. Amen, amen. Hey, if you're here for the very first time, I forgot to say welcome to your name in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're happy you're here. Raise your hands if you have uh, forgot your Bibles and your usher will make sure you have Bible in hand. Uh, normally I have my uh, teaching uh, in written form out if, as my notes, but that didn't go well this morning, so I end up having to bring my computer, so I apologize for uh, not being able to see that thing in front of me. So I hope it doesn't distract you as much as it is to me. <laughs> so uh, Genesis, Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 2, and we are going to go through 25 verses, all of chapter 2 today, Lord willing, and, uh, and we'll take it through. Genesis chapter 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. So we'll just take a start here. We look here in the first three verses, and we notice, obviously, the word Genesis. The book of Genesis means the beginning or beginning. And it's the beginning, as we've seen so far in chapter 1, the beginning of the creation of the heavens and the earth, the beginning of creation of the animals, the birds of the air, the creatures of the, of the seas. 
We've also seen here today or in chapter one and, and more specifically here in chapter two, we're going to see the creation of man and woman. We, we learned last week how important it is to keep it very simple in the fact that God created everything that we've talked about last two Sundays and even today as we will see God in chapter 2 give us a little bit more specifics of what took place that we read and studied in chapter 1. That God did create in six literal days what we've talked about. Six 24-hour days. Not millions of years, not billions of years, not whatever it may be for the latest and greatest museum you've gone through, but what the Word of God says. And that is our foundation, and that's what we believe, and that's what we follow, is the Word. Him and Him alone do we follow, and what He has said and given to us. And we keep it that simple because it's not complex, and it also brings such clarity, and it doesn't allow for the enemy to put doubts in our minds because if he can put doubts in your mind about how he created the heavens and the earth, then if you allow that to be come into your mind, then you will then doubt many things in the scriptures that do not fall in line with your feelings or what you think or what man has told you through some book or some teaching or some whatever. But what does the word of God say? And we believe the, enti- the, the entirety of the word of God. So here in the first three verses, we find... The creation of the, of the earth in chapter 1, we've seen the placing of man upon the earth. We've seen the declaration of, this, of the seventh day that God rested. And that not that he was tired. God wasn't tired. He's sitting there exhausted and wiping off his brow as this is incredible amount of work. You see how much work I've been doing the last six days? I deserve to rest on the seventh day. That is not his mindset. The mindset of God is the fact that he's an omnipotent, all-powerful God. He doesn't need to rest like you and I. And he doesn't look to rest because you just want to sit around and, and veg out for the day. He created the vegetation. He doesn't need to veg out. He said, ah, how great and how complete I am done with what I wanted to do. And he looked. I mean, you've ever been there, you've done a project, right? You've, you've created that project, and it probably if you're like me in construction, it, you know, everyone says, oh, Corey, that would take a couple hours. And for me, it's usually two days then. So you say two hours, it's two days for me. But at the end of that creation of what I've had to do, I look and go, wow, I can't believe I even made it. You know, it's amazing. It's a miracle that I even made this, right? But see, God, he's into the, the miracles, right? He created the heavens and the earth. It wasn't because he was tired, because all of the energy that has been expended in creating the heavens and the earth was because of a God who is an omnipotent God and that he can, he can do this without a question. But he had to finish his work and he then just rested on this work and we see in Psalm 121.4 that God rests with the rest of the of the, of the completion of that, not the rest of exhaustion but the, or weariness, but the fact that he was resting in the completion of his work, his good, his very good work that he says at the very end of, of the sixth day. 
God gave a pattern here to us. And as we study through the Old Testament, we see this pattern played out and practically in the New Testament. And here we see this pattern that God gave man regarding the structure of time, the seven-day structure, or seven days within a week. And that the seventh day here, or the Sabbath day, gave a sign to the the, to the, uh, the people of Israel that they were God's special people. And we see that in Exodus chapter 31, verses 13 through 17 that God references, that he used his creation, this, these days, to show of his people of the, of the fact that it's a sign for them of, of his special people. God sanctified the seventh day because it was a gift to man for rest and replenishment. There was a purpose. Everything that God does have a purpose. And that when you go outside of his purpose and according to his plan, then you and I are going to cause some problems among ourselves or with ourselves individually. And most of all, this is a symbol that God gave an eternal rest for God's people will have in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We see that in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 9 through 11 of that reference. So not only does he give it a symbol to his people in Israel of, of the fact that of these seven days and, and that you would work six days and you would rest for replenishment and for rest. You must be still and know that he is God. And, and he gave that to them as a structure, a purpose, a plan. Not only that, he also obviously gave a, a, an, an external rest for God's people in and through the person of the work of Jesus Christ. Because in Hebrews 4, it makes it very clear that Christians are not under the obligation to observe the Sabbath day. Because Jesus fulfilled the purpose and the plan of the Sabbath day. He completely fulfilled the Sabbath day for us and in us. But yet Christians do not lose the Sabbath day from a practical perspective in regards to a purpose of an every uh, for rest or to work and to the rest. But the fact that every day is a day of rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. That every day is specifically and specially set apart by God for your life each and every day. So when you and I wake up every day, we are to sit there and say, God, what do you have for us in this day? And I'm going to rest in what you're going to guide me to do, give me the wisdom to do, give me the energy to do. And I'm going to work this day because that's what you've called me to do. And it's going to be according to his direction, his plan each day. And that's why sometimes people get really frustrated when you have your plan and you've written out your plan and you've got it all stepped out. This is what I'm doing tomorrow. And I planned it all out. And you wake up in the morning, you've got your set of things and plans. And all of a sudden, it always seems when you have this plan, this perfect plan, what happens to the kids? What happens to your neighbor? What happens to your family member who calls you on the phone? What happens to you physically when you get sick? And you're sitting there going, this is not supposed to happen. But who do you say you are? Are you in control of your life? Or do you sit there and say, God, you're in control. And you've allowed this to happen. You've allowed me to, to be able to, you've called me now to minister to someone else in time of need. And we have to be flexible in these things. Because if we get so concrete that everything has to revolve around us, you are going to struggle in life. 
And as a parent, if God doesn't use kids to break you of that, I don't know what else to do it. Because then you're going to have something much more, con- you know, if kids don't break you and your selfishness, I wait till you bring something else in your life to break you. Because he's going to do a work in your life and in my life because he's going to cause us to trust in him on a daily life. And how God has set us up to seven days is so beautiful because he has calls us to work six days and rest on the seventh. But we find rest in God every day. But the pattern is still there because sometimes people sit there and work seven days a week and they wonder why they're exhausted physically. Some people only have these four to five day work weeks because their goal is to not ever have to work again. But it goes against what God has called you to do. So for those who are blessed to have four or five day work weeks, that means that you've got more free time to do work for God in those other times of of the six days. You don't get to sit back and just do whatever. You're still waking up every day like all of us are supposed to say, God, what do you have for me today? And it may be, I just need you to be still and know that I'm God. I just need you to sit right here in your comfy little chair and open up the word and just let me talk to you today. Those days count. Yes, those are good days. And especially on that seventh day, that one day a week where you find yourself, you're not distracted and busy, busy, busy. But you're finding rest to be in in his word every day. But especially one of the days to find that rest for your life. Now, although we are free from the legal obligation of the Sabbath, we should not ignore the importance of a day of rest. Because God built that into a need for us. That we need to have that downtime one day a week, we have to find some downtime that it's not consuming your energies that you can replenish and refresh your mind and to sit there and to ponder on God's word, to hear from him a freshness of of what what he has to say for you. Now, as we enter here in verse four, we see that in verse four, this is the history of the heavens and of the earth. And when they, are cre- when they were created in the day that the Lord made the earth and the heavens. Verse 5, before any plant of the field was in the earth and before any herb of the field had grown. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth and there was no man to till the ground. But a mist went out from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground and the Lord, God, the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. So we get a little bit more detail now from chapter 1 of what took place and how God created. We see here in this verse, it's verses 4 through 7, it comes and it starts restating for us some clarity or aspects of the creation that he did during these, these six days. And then when we take a look at this, you just look here in verse 4 about the history or the generations of the heavens and the earth that God brought about. The, the genealogy, the, the history of that given directly by God to either Moses or Adam to make sure this was written down for you and I and for them back at that time. The recording of the history of God's seven-day creation. 
and that something, even though no human was there at that time as a witness, God made sure it was written down and given to Adam or to Moses for you and I. Now, in the day the Lord God made the heavens, the, the earth and the heavens, if you take note, here is the very first time we see the, the, the word Lord in all capitals. It should be Lord in all capitals. Now, you might have the small or lowercase capital letters of O-R-D, but there should all be capitals. Because that is where we start seeing the word Yahweh. In the Bible, we see when the, the word Lord in all capitals, as in this case, it means that, that the name of the God that Jews reverend so highly would not pronounce the word Lord or the name of God. They would not write the vowels of his name. It was so reverend that they wouldn't speak it, nor would they write it. So they always use the words, the, the consonants, or the J-H-V-H. Try and pronounce that one. You can't. And you, can't you cannot pronounce that because they wanted no one to be able to do it. It was so reverent. But we, and, and those who believe over time, has believed th what the word was, was Yahweh, or the, the best way to say uh, Lord, in the all capital reference here from the original Hebrew, is Yahweh. Now, the repeated emphasis, the Lord God, if you notice here, if you scan through all of the chapter 2, there is at least five different areas that it references the Lord God. So, in the very beginning, in chapter 1, we did not see the Lord God, we just saw God. God meaning Elohim. Here we see a God created. We now see that he is the God of shalom or the God of peace. He's the God of healing. He's a God. And you see the Jehovah Jireh. You see, you see the, the reference not only that he is a God, but he is God and meets the needs of his people. Once he created man, we now see that he is referenced as the Lord God because he is a God that meets the needs of his people of his creation. And so we see that as a reference. Now in verse 5, he says, Before any plant of the field was in the earth, where the history begins before there was any vegetation on the earth that we saw back in Genesis 1-1, there was only space and a watery globe we known as earth at that time. And in verse 6, where he says, the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, we see and we know before he brought and, and created the firmament, he has the water vapor above, we have the water on the earth, and we see that this beautiful um, uh, uh, atmosphere that created the, 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 the water to come up and to, to mist and to, to water the lands, there was no rain at that time. The rain didn't come until the flood during Noah's time. That's when all the water in the air and the sky, they believe, came come crashing down on the earth. The water from the, within the earth and, and on the ground was coming up, and it changed everything at the flood. But here at this time, as God has created, he's created this where it's, it's atmosphere. There was no rain at that point in time. This, it was an atmosphere that created such a no rain cycle that we are familiar with today. But at, back at that time, this evaporation condensation was perfect to nourish the land that he created. 
Now in verse 7, the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground. When God created man, he made him out of the most basic 17 elements found in the dirt. And he used the dust of the ground and he created something spectacular, what he called man. And that was the start. But if you noticed here at the end of verse 7, he says, once he formed man out of the dust of the ground, what did he do? Take note of this. He breathed, God himself breathed into his Adam's nostrils, mouth to nose resuscitation. He breathed his breath into the life of Adam. It's key words there. God himself breathed into the nostrils of the, of the breath of life for Adam. And became, man became a living being above Adam. Very important verse, words within verse 7. Like other forms of animal life, God created from the dirt. But when he created man, he created a living breathing when he breathed himself into the nostrils of that man. The word breathe in Hebrew here is nafak, means to blow or to give breath. It is not the word ruach, which means giving of the spirit. Or we see in the Greek, pneuma. Or we see in the Latin, um, spiritus. It means literally breath he breathed into the life of Adam. It wasn't the Holy Spirit coming into Adam. It was his own breath coming into Adam. Now in verse 8, we see now we move our focus into Eden, but a specific part of Eden, the garden that God created here in verse 8 and 9. He says, the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight. And good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So here in these two verses, we see a couple of very significant things take place. There's God, the Lord God. He takes, created Adam. He takes Adam. And he once he created Adam, he gave him life. He had a plan and a purpose for him. And he set him in the Eastern, eastward area of Eden. We don't know where Eden is. Lots of people speculate and everyone has a, a certain sense. We know it's over the Middle East area there, but specifically if we look at the verses here, we, we don't know where the garden that God created in Eden is. But wherever it is, it was good and it was great and it was perfect according to God's plan. And he took Adam and he placed him in that purpose of that plan in that garden. And if you notice there, that God, when he made this perfect habitation for Adam and later for Eve, that we see here that out of the ground, the Lord, 
made every tree, every tree, grow that is pleasant, not only by sight, but also good for food. Because remember, they were the, they ate vegetables and fruit. That's how you, we, you and I ate. That's how the animals ate in this time. But what's interesting is you look at the language here in these two verses, you'll find that he also emphasizes two trees that are within that Garden of Eden. One is the tree of life. And the other was in the midst, also in there, is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So these two trees were among all the other trees that God created and put in the Garden of Eden. The tree of life was to grant or to sustain eternal life. We'll, we'll see that in Genesis chapter 3, verse 22. But God still has a tree of life available to his people that we will see and we have seen when we studied Revelation chapter 2, verse 7, which is in heaven, and also referenced Revelation 22, 2. So that tree of life will continue into the future for you and I. Now, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil will spend more time on that in the next chapter because it plays a, a critical role for you and I and also, obviously, for Adam and Eve uh, during that time. But in verse 10, we see that there's more specifics about the garden or about the, 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 what he, God created for the garden at that time, and we see in verse 10, now a river went out of Eden to water the garden. And from there, it parted and became four river heads. Well, in verse 11, we see the very first, the name of the first is Phison, and it is one which skirts the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. And bedellum, or the oxen stone, are there as well. So people who read this, they go, wow, uh, where is this Garden of Eden? Because of gold, we can go a gold rush there. We can find these precious stones that God obviously referenced within this scripture here. So you know whatever that is, uh, those types of stones, that must have been incredible value, important. Or he would not have mentioned it within the scripture. But we don't know where that place is or where to find that gold. But in verse 13, we see the second river. The name of the second river is Gihon, and it is one which goes around the whole land of Cush. In verse 14, we see the name of the third river is uh, Hidekel, or we know as reference in the scripture as Tigris River. And it is the one which goes toward the east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. Now what's interesting is we take a look at those, and if you go to the historical maps, and all of us have done that, if you've done your word searches, right? And you're looking for all four rivers, aren't you? There's the Tigris, there's the Euphrates, it must be here. But see, you forget that this, these were named in prior to and in value of prior to the flood. And prior to the flood, the whole land structure and rivers and stuff were different than after the flood. So you and I can't just be saved, we use the, the name Euphrates and 
Tigris today is the na- same rivers that is referenced here in the second uh, chapter of Genesis. They're just using the names of the same names that Noah and his family would have used to reference back and maybe have named certain rivers at that time after the flood. So just because we have them today does not mean they were the same rivers back in chapter 2 reference. So we don't want you to get confused in regards to that and think we know for a fact or anyone out there who thinks we're so wise know exactly where the Garden of Eden is because we don't. We don't know. We know a geographical overarching area called Eden. And it was in that geographical called Eden, he created a garden within Eden on the eastward side, and that's where he placed man, and they're eventually going to make a place Eve there, and that's where they start their work, which we will see. Now we see in verse 15, we see that then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and to keep it. He's got a purpose. Adam, I'm going to place you here, and there's going to be a purpose, and you're going to attend, and you're going to keep it. Keep it in order. Keep it instructed. Be taken care of it. Oversee it. Watch it. Make sure it's cared for. I created this for you. And verse 16, and the Lord God commanded the man, saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So we see here in verse 15 and through 17 that God gave a commandment. He gave an Edenic covenant to Adam. A commandment, a covenant that says, this you shall do for me. This is what you must do and keep. And the first thing he says is that you're going to tend and keep the, the garden. But also, you have all the freedom you want to eat from all of these trees that you see in front of you that are pleasant to see and good to eat. The entire garden. You have all the freedom to touch it. Eat it. But there was only one edict covenant or commandment he gave them in this time, and that was one commandment. It's all he had to remember. It's really easy for God. You only have to remember one thing of what I'm going to tell you. Do not touch the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. One simple. I mean, today we have to deal with all kinds of temptations. All kinds of things can come to us that we're not supposed to touch. And you always sit there. If we just get rid of all the temptations, I'll be just fine. No, you're not. Because Adam wasn't either. And he only had one. He had all the trees that were pleasant to look at and see and he could touch and partake of. But one. Because God didn't create a robot. He did not create some being that just on autopilot and have no free choice. Because for you to love someone... It has to be a free choice if it's truly to be loved. But if you're forced to someone and you don't have a say of loving them or not, then is it really free choice? So God created a being, Adam and Eve, for them to have a free choice to love him or not. So he gave a test or a a position to make that choice if you choose God and commandment and to 
keep that covenant with him to eat the trees that he provided for them that was pleasant and good, but do not touch the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You have a free choice on that. That's all I ask of you. One thing to focus on. And because this presence of this tree, of the knowledge of good and evil, this presence of a choice for Adam was good because for Adam to be a creature of free will, there had to be a choice. Some opportunity to rebel against God had to be there. And if there is never a command or never something forbidden, that can then never be a choice for you and I. God wants our love. He wants our obedience. He wants our obedience to him, to be the love and obedience of choice. That's what we raise our children to be. We raise them up to teach them love and obedience by choice. To raise them up so that when they come to an age of accountability, of understanding, they'll understand how that applies to their Godfather in heaven. By obedience, by a choice, they can choose to love God and be obedient to him. Look at all the advantages Adam's had, Adam had. One thing to think about, tend and keep the garden. Second thing is don't touch that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, if you notice, this commandment was given to who? It was just given to Adam. God said, you're going to be where you're going to receive the commandment, the covenant, that you are to not to touch that tree. He held him responsible for that commandment. Because not only did he say what you're not to do, but he also made it very clear what? What the consequences are if you don't be obedient. And as parenting, not only do you teach your children what they are to do and not to do, but you're also supposed to be teaching them what? The consequences of their disobedience or the consequences for their obedience. You're supposed to be very clear as parenting. You're supposed to do that as well. And God the Father made it very clear to Adam there would be consequences. What are the consequences? The day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Not only does he make God make it so clear to Adam the commandment, he makes it clear of the consequences of his disobedience. That if he surely eats of this, he would spiritually die. He would be cut off from that relationship, direct relationship with God. That, because he didn't physically die immediately. He lived to 900 years of age. But emotionally and mentally, he continued to think and to act and to, to do what you see in the scriptures. But the cutting off or the change of the relationship between him and God, that direct relationship, changed everything. Yes, physically, we started dying from that point on. 
And we can see over time, especially when it came to the flood, you can see the deterioration of man's age uh, from hundreds of years down to the predicting of the 70. There's consequences for disobedience to what God has called you to do or not to do. Now, we see in verse 18 that he declares that man needs help. Adam needed help. And God knew it from the very beginning before he even created the heavens and the earth. And he knew man would need help. And so we see here in verse 18 that the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. It's not good for man to be alone. For the very first time, God saw something that was not good, and that is the loneliness of man. God never intended for man to be alone, to isolate himself from everybody else. Either in the marital situation or even a social sense, God did not create man to isolate himself from others. That is contrary to what God created man to do. And when someone says, I do not want to be around someone else, I do not, and goes against what God has designed them to be, there is consequences that are, will impact you emotionally, physically, and spiritually in your life. That's why we are never, we're not to forsake the fellowship. We're not to forsake the live, interacting and pouring our lives into other people and into God. Because it's the best thing we can for our mental and spiritual and physical health. But especially when it comes to marriage for men, especially in particular, bless a civilizing influence on man. If you want to take a man who is by himself for a long period of time, you'll find a man who will become more and more uncivilized. They just kind of, they're a mess. I've seen some guys who are really a mess. They really, the stripes and the patterns do not go together. You know, you know your eating habits could really be, could be helped out, you know. Thank God for moms, right? Moms play a role for a while for their young men. Until they then leave home and they're off on doing something. When you look at a bunch of you know thousands of men in like in the military, you can see no wonder they have the same uniform. Can you imagine if they didn't have the same uniform? It'd be a mess trying to put them in together. But marriage, God says, that's why He's going to bring a helper. Marriage, and through that marriage, takes a man and civilizes him, or brings an influence that's so positive to help them because we have saw studies that the most wild, most violent, most psychopathic men in history has always been single. Or a pattern of a man who's gone so isolated from others that they become to, uh, mentally they become unstable beings. And so it's never been under the plan of God for man to be alone. It is not good. And he says, I will make him a helper comparable to him. He didn't say, I'm going to make a helper who is exactly like him. He said, comparable. 
And if you look at the original language, it means in contrast or opposite. And so many times if you study the marriage and you look in your own marriage, your strengths are her weaknesses and your weaknesses are her strengths. And together you guys are much stronger. So as we take a look at why God's blueprint for creating a companion to Adam was to make a helper comparable to Adam. Now, if you take it from a relationship or a marriage relationship, God created woman to be a perfectly suitable helper to the man. This means God gave the plan and agenda to Adam and he and the woman together worked to fulfill it. God has has a purpose and a plan for man. And God has a purpose and a plan for woman. They're not, they're just different. They're not wrong. They're just different in how they are created by God and a purpose for them. Does it mean that there's no help from the man to the woman? It's only woman to help the man. That's not true. Even though it's, been, it's sadly to see in a marriage relationship where the woman pours into the man, but the man never helps the woman, that is not right. It's not biblical because a leader always helps others. A leader always sacrifices and pours into the other. Always a leader does that. So men, if you think your woman is just to help you and just be at your beck and call and you don't have to help her, you don't understand leadership, spiritual leadership. You don't understand how God created you and your plan and purpose. But God looks down from heaven upon the family. He sees a man in a leadership role of that family, good or bad, faithful or not, to the calling of leadership. And a true leader will always, of course, help them and help those who are with him. But unfortunately, society has poured in and the enemy, the devil, has poured into the lives of the people's minds that says, if you're a helper, that must mean you're inferior, uh, in, in, inferior in some form or fashion or lesser of a position. But that's not God's intention nor a, defini- a true definition of what God is talking about here. He's brought her alongside of Adam, as we will see, to help him to fulfill the things that he needs help with. He is then to take and lead her and to help her and to work together to do what God called him to do here in this garden. And to work together side by side to make that happen. Not one in front of the other, but side by side. In unity, understanding the roles and responsibilities and being faithful and committed to do those that what God's called you to do. And the differences are so funny at times. I sit there and say one thing and Kathleen responds completely different from a completely different view of that. 
Now, you and I and I need to understand, so when my wife responds something opposite of what I just stated, it's not wrong, it's just different. And that I need, and we together look at those two viewing points of the same situation and determine what God wants us to do. But I'm going to be held ultimately responsible as the leader of the house. God is going to hold me responsible for doing what God has revealed to us. So she's not trying to circumvent your leadership. She's not trying to take control of your leadership. She is given by God a different viewpoint of, of how you conceive things or how to respond to things. And it's all good and right. Kathleen and I are, it's amazing how many times I go, it is amazing that we're how opposite. And that she sees things completely different. I mean, can I can walk down the street and do one thing and she, she goes, did you see that? No, I didn't see that. Did you see that? No, I didn't see that. You know your mom's birthday. No, I didn't know my mom even, you know. She's there to always remind me or to help me or to fill in or do it. And it's vice versa. I can do that for you. Oh, oh, I, I, yeah, I, I, yes, I need that. I, even though she may think she can do it all because she's woman. But she really does need a man to be there also to help her. And God brings it together as long as you understand that you're together and there's a unity to make this all work. Because you're both tied in together with God and working and listening to God and helping each other. And God uses each other in our lives. Because God said right from the very beginning that man should not be alone. And when once we understand it and, and see it from God's perspective, we're able to receive and understand the value of the, the marriage and the relationship between man and woman. Because God considers positions of service as very important in his sight. And we can go back and read Matthew chapter 20, verses 25 through 28. God takes it very serious of our positions and our roles and responsibilities. So not only was the woman to be a helper to others, but she was made comparable to the man. A woman or a wife cannot be regarded as a, just a mere tool or worker, but as an equal partner in God's grace and equal human being. Now in verse 19 and 20, we see out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them and whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. So we now see the part of the role and responsibility Adam had. As God had created Mr. and Mrs. Cattle, he brought them to Adam, and Adam named the cattle. Named, it didn't say every single thing that God created, but 
whatever that God said that needed to be created, Adam must have been the most brilliant man ever to live. He wasn't some caveman who was grunting and didn't know what. He was able to, probably the most brilliant man ever to be created by God. Perfect. Because sin had not entered his life at this point. His intellect. So he was able to see, look, and observe and go, that's a hippopotamus. Now, in the original language, there's probably a very specific purpose and reason why he called it a hippopotamus. Or whatever he called it at the time in the original language. But you and I are no different. Some people can look at a dog and you, and you look at a dog and you say, oh, that's the dog's name. Look at Fluffy. Look at how fluffy he is. We see it in the scriptures all the time that biblical names were given to each person, Esau, and it goes on and on, based on the appearance or based on the purpose or based on whatever God was showing. So here we are, we've got Adam looking at all these animals and he looks and said, that's the name. And that was the name. Incredible intellect to be able to do that. And there was a reason and purpose that God brought to Adam these animals to name. But you notice he did not, in the scriptures, he did not name any of the animals or the birds or whatever after him as a human being. He didn't call them, that's a man or that's a human. He called it by its an animal reference of the name. Now, it's interesting, in verse 21, and the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam. And he slept. The very first time, more than likely at this point in time, we see the first time man ever slept. But God caused a deep sleep. Why? Well, it says he took one of his ribs, or in the original language, it doesn't mean rib that we know it of, but he took something from the side of Adam. And then he closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman and he brought her to the man. So when we take a look at this language, notice the change. That God's had him doing the work, naming the animals, naming the birds, he's doing the work. And you know Adam's sitting there going, nothing here is comparable, is anything like me. And God's, after he's done his work, after his, there's a purpose of, of what he's going to do for God. Here's his purpose. God then says, I'm going to put you into a deep sleep, Adam. Now, I will make a side note here. My prayer for every single young man who's not married, I pray that God puts them in a deep sleep and does not see and, and even acknowledge there is, there's woman. That God would give them a purpose, a plan, what they're going to do for life before, and all of a sudden put them in a deep sleep so they're not distracted until it's time. But notice this. Once God put Adam into a deep sleep, he took a part of him, whatever that may have been, 
It's referenced in our language here as a rib, the side of Adam. And he created woman. Now remember the language here we've already been studying. When he created Adam, what did he create him from? The dust of the ground. What did he create the animals from? The dust of the ground. What did he create the birds from? The dust of the ground. But woman, he did not create from the dust of the ground. He created from man. And you can imagine when he came out of his deep sleep and he looked and saw a woman. <laughs> That's woman. You can imagine his eyes of seeing someone like himself. Not an animal. He just finished naming all the animals and birds. Nothing was comparable to him. And then God said, uh, no, but I'm not. I'm going to sit here and I'm going to bring someone who's comparable to you. To me, what value for a woman. Taking from man. It talks about the unity and the oneness. And the purpose. We see that the very first surgery recorded in history right here. Opened up man, took something from him, and then closed him back up. God didn't need an anesthetic. Because it doesn't say he needed an anesthetic because there was no pain at that time in creation. But God just caused a deep sleep do the work of what he was going to do. God used Adam's own body to create Eve. To ever for remind him, to remind him as a man of their essential oneness because woman came from man. And Adam took and came to know Eve and he would see many ways that they are different. But he must never forget they are essentially one and they are made of the same substance. They are more alike than they are different. She would become his co-responder to him in that life. Now, many people will take a look at this scripture and I've heard it and seen it and read it many times where people sit there and say they don't believe the Bible can be the word of God because man has the same number of ribs as a woman. Have you heard that? When I first got saved and I read that for the very first time, do you know what I did? And I knew medical. I even medically, I knew I was taking care of patients. I seen and I've touched the ribs themselves in people. And I'm saying, how many ribs do I have? Wait a minute, did I forget that woman has one less? I really was. I, I took, it took me back in my early days. And so many people will sit there and say, well, man and woman has the same amount of ribs, so this, I, you can't believe the word of God. But the logic is just so ir illogical if you really think about it. Someone who would logically think and argue the fact that they do not want to believe the word of God because men and women had the same number of ribs and the Bible said it took a rib for man. I'll give you an example. You got in a car accident. 
you lost your arm in the accident. Does that mean the next time you have a child, that child will be born with one less arm? No. You chopped off a finger and you have a child. Does that mean your next child you'll have will be one less finger? Only nine fingers, not ten. Just because God took something from Adam to make Eve does not make what he created something less inferior or less complete than what he created Adam to be. So that argument of trying to justify why you wouldn't want to believe the word of God based on something, this is just foolish and silly. But we also know it brings back a memory or at least a word picture from the scriptures, doesn't it? When God brought up brought to to Jesus the bride of Christ and by the wound that was made in his side of the second Adam Jesus saved there's something there briefly for us the side of Adam and the side of the second Adam Jesus Christ both reference the side it's interesting now the word woman here in these verses reference in the original language of Isha, the wife. Woman means wife. And it's important to realize that there are not two beginnings to the human race. There is one in Adam and one in Eve. There was one beginning of the human race, and that is in Adam. Adam from dust, Eve from Adam. There is not two separate. But the wife, that's the original language for woman. And for man, it's Ish, means husband. God brought Eve to Adam and created Eve out of Adam. He was the first, the source and the head. He was created to be the helper perfectly suited to him. And those things, if you understand that and just see our original language, it helps your understanding of the purpose of man and woman together and how complete and beautiful that is. Now, when he woke up and he saw Eve, and we see, and he says, Whoa, woman, we see in verse 23 his response. Adam said what? This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So he names her exactly what God intended. He could see that she was comparable. She was just like him. He's bone of the bone, flesh of the flesh. He recognized Eve was both like him, but also not like him. He didn't look and say, oh, man. He said he recognized that was someone different but comparable. That's woman. So God created man and God created woman. And he brought them together, one man, one woman. It's right from the very beginning, God set the pattern and the perfection of what he meant by when he, we see later on in marriage. Marriage is not between two men. It's not between two women. It's not with an animal. Even though society and culture today says that's what they want, that is completely against what God had created. And when you go against what God has created, you have problems. And you're going against the will of God. 
Now, flesh of my flesh, he says. The essential oneness in the relationship that he recognized with Eve. The great marriage passage that we have studied in Ephesians 5, verses 28 and 29 says, So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Do you see where the essence has come from where you understand that woman was created for man? Because for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Men, if you recognize how God created woman for man, how God brought you a, a comparable helper to help you, you and I are to do what? You're not to, you don't hate your own flesh. You're not to have anything negative against your wife. But you're to do nothing but nourish and cherish her. That is what you are to do. That is what God has called you to do. Are we doing it? Then we must step up and we must do it. See, no one walks into a room and seeks the most uncomfortable seat. You just very naturally looks what's going to benefit from it. You look for the position. You look for all the little things that's interest of you. And you're always thinking about what's going to be best for you. Concerned about yourself. Taking care of yourself. In a healthy marriage, a healthy relationship, the husband realizes the essential union with his wife. And that cannot bless her more than the fact that he dies of self. And then comes in and says, what's the best thing for my wife in this situation? How can I look what's best for her and I will sacrifice? That's how men are to lead and to think. Now, we wrap up here in verses 24 and 25 with the word, verse 24, therefore. Everything we've been studying. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, and the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. So we see the marriage of Adam and Eve. The marriage principle here, they shall become one flesh is based on the dynamic of oneness, yet very distinctively different. The man and the wife can truly come together in a one flesh relationship, and yet they must be joined, even though they're different, that God miraculously can bring two people opposite into a union, into a oneness, that beyond, I think, you and I could fully understand. But this passage forms the biblical understanding of marriage and family. Both Jesus in Matthew 19.5 and Paul in Ephesians 31 quote and reference this in marriage. And how important it is as we see how God sees marriage between one man and one woman and how that is perfectly designed to have that union and join together. That he referenced here in verse 24 that a man shall leave his father and mother. 
Now keep in mind, during this culture, they didn't leave the father and mother's house. They built on the house. So it's not like this saying, okay, I'm going to get married. That gives me, a, I can just get on the other side of the country. Right? In context, you understand, it's not talking about physically leaving mom and dad. It's changing the relationship so now man is not uh, first priority to, their, to the, the father and the mother of them. But now his priority becomes to of his wife. That his wife has the most influence over him, not the father and the mother of them. That you don't seek counsel from the father, the mother, that you come together in union with your wife and you discuss with God about what you are to do and not to do. But that's after marriage. How many times I have counseled men and young men and women who are dating or courting and they sit there and the man will listen to that, 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 the, the girl before there was any commitment made. Or she listens to him before there's any commitment made. The commitment is when they get married, that is when the relationships and things change in regards to priority and where their emphasis will be. There is a preparation, don't get me wrong. There should be a, a sign and showing if this is of God that she is going to, to um, honor or to, to, uh, to, uh, to respect him. And, and, he, and he should be showing signs of sacrifice and of love toward her. There should be signs that, that God is bringing them together. But the ultimate change takes place once they have commitment and that marriage takes place. That there must be a change in how you look at your parents. You're to honor them, yes. You're to help and support them and do whatever God's called you to do, yes. But to for you to go back and bring your parents into a situation within your uh, marriage and the good, the bad, the ugly, and bring them into it, you're, you're taking out of context or what the intent was. You must come to God, the two of you, as a husband and wife, and you must keep it within the confines and not to bring mom and dad are not to intervene in the lives of their children's lives. You cannot insert yourself into their lives. You must pray for them, yes. You must pray for great-grandchildren, yes. And you can pour into the lives of those grandchildren, yes. But you don't tell them how to raise those grandchildren. You don't tell them how to have a, a marriage. All you can do is pray for them, and if they ask you together, they come and ask then you take them to the word of God. And that is what you're to do. The word of God, God himself is supposed to have influence over every marriage. And they were both naked. There was no reason to be covered up because of the shame of, that's why the scriptures here, they were both not ashamed. Not the fact that they were ashamed of what they looked like, because I think they were probably perfect in what they looked like. But what it's referencing is, is there was no sin in their lives. They were open. They were transparent. There was no sin in their lives. So there was no shame. The covering comes after what? Disobedience and sin. When they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's when the first covering took place. Because now sin has entered in the lives of man and woman. So before the fall, they were naked, not ashamed, 
They were dwelling with God, walking in the garden with God for a purpose that God called them. They were doing exactly what they're doing. They were in obedience. They were in fellowship. There was a oneness. It was beautiful. Chapter 3 is a radical change. But we'll keep it right here for today in the Garden of Eden. Father, we thank you and praise you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for your grace and your mercy upon our lives as we learn, as we grow in understanding of your word and your intent. I pray, Lord, you spoke to the hearts of all of us, molding us, shaping us, convicting us, correcting us, encouraging us. May we believe in you. May we trust you by faith in you and you alone. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen, amen, amen. Please stand. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Face shine down upon you. That you would have a, just a nice, warm week in the love of God. I promise you on the exterior, but on the interior, may will you be warmed by God. That you have uh, a oneness and closeness and good fellowship through the week. If anyone here needs prayer, we're here to pray for you, with you. We do not want you to leave without going to God together and helping you. Let us help you with the word of God. And, but have a kind of fellowship. Let God use you in the life of someone else that is in tremendous need. Even more, probably more need than you. That's how fellowship works. It's a beautiful thing. Don't forget to eat the cupcakes. And if you, someone can stay and help stack up some chairs and move them and get things ready and pull out some, some tables, we have to be very careful around here. And I know Mark or Heather will help, but there's some tables in here, and we'll make sure we pull out the tables very carefully not to ruin any of the equipment. But uh, Mark and, and Heather will help uh, do that part of it. But if you have any questions, let me know. I'll be in. Love you guys dearly. Have a great week. Amen. Soon and very soon, we are going to see our king. Soon and very soon, we are going to see our king. Soon and very soon, we are going to see our king. Hallelujah, hallelujah, we're going to see our king. God bless you all.